Welcome to Amplify. On this week's episode, I found myself thinking more and more about this idea of the air being that which we breathe on the one hand, but also that which conveys missiles, uh, that which conveys pollution, uh, and that which conveys viruses. A conversation with Raymond Dean on his recent work, Vayu Vata, written for the Rudersdal Chamber Players. You're listening to Raymond Dean's Violin Concerto with soloist Christine Prun. And you'll also hear from Christine, who is the violinist with the Rudersdal Chamber Players, about this new piano quartet by Raymond for the group. This is episode 60, and I'm joined once again by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, Jonathan. So composer Raymond Dean is one of a few artists, Yvonne, who has been a constant presence in the Irish new music scene since the 1970s, hasn't he? Yeah, Raymond Dean, he's such an established composer known throughout Ireland and internationally. Began composing at a young age, so at this point he is very much a composer with a large and comprehensive body of work. Concertos that uh, stand out, his violin concerto, his oboe concerto, large-scale orchestral works, where piano is a particular favourite of mine from 2000, a recommended work at the international rostrum of composers, numerous chamber works, works for piano, because of course Raymond is also a very fine pianist and numerous piano works have been taken up by Irish pianists and performed both at home and abroad. And Raymond's music, really, Jonathan, it's it's consistent in its quality, um, I would say. And there's very much a musical craftsman at work. The music's always original, always engaging. And it seems to me that's the case from this new work as well that you spoke to him about. Yes, indeed. And this work, Vayu Vata, was written during the pandemic and commissioned through the Arts Council's Commissions Award. Yeah, that, no, that's an award that's really essential in the creation of new work. And it's particularly welcome that it's open to ensembles and performers from outside of Ireland to apply to commission new work by composers from Ireland. And it really enables not just the creation of the work itself, but the performance of works by Irish composers internationally. Repeat performances too. That's a really good thing about this award. You know, the pieces are usually ensured numerous performances. So it's a real dissemination of works by Irish composers. So let's hear my conversation with Raymond Dean now. I spoke to Raymond last month just before the second performance of his work Vata, took place. In the middle of our chat you'll also briefly hear from violinist Christine Prun about working with Raymond on the piece and some of the techniques which he uses.
it was commissioned in uh, early 2020 by Christine Prune, who is a wonderful Danish violinist that I've been working with on and off really over the last 20 years or so. In fact, I wrote my violin concerto for her. She has an ensemble called the, the Rudersdal Chamber Soloist in Denmark. And they're doing a series of concerts based on the four elements. And it was the turn of air. So she asked me, would I write a piece dealing with air in both its positive and negative aspects? I did a bit of digging around and I came up with this deity, a Zoroastrian double deity called Vayu Vata, representing the air in its angelic and demonic aspects. I came up with four quotations from different sources that have to do with precisely that air and its uh, positive and negative aspects. And the piece is a kind of uh, meditation on that. And in fact, uh, because the original concert, the original premiere was to have taken place last year on Holocaust Memorial Day, I chose, for example, a text by Paul Salan, the great... Uh, poet of the Holocaust. And I found myself thinking more and more about this idea of the air being that which we breathe on the one hand, but also that which conveys missiles, uh, that which conveys pollution, uh, and that which conveys viruses. And then that became a little bit too topical for comfort because the first performance was then cancelled precisely because of the pandemic. you got the commission in early 2020. So you were working on that during that crazy, strange, bizarre time of the, you know, the initial number of months of the pandemic. Um, how much of that informed the piece? I kept focusing in my mind on the question of war and destruction uh, and the role played by the air in that. Uh, and that kind of uh, uh, took over my, my consciousness to a very large extent. It's in some ways one of my more extreme pieces. There, there is extreme violence in it and there is extreme gentleness in it. And I use certain extended techniques in it that I don't normally use. I'm not a, an extended technique fanatic, you know. So that kind of took over from the whole pandemic imagery, although I was from the very start, the prospect of the premiere probably being cancelled was, so to speak, in the air. And you were able Despite the uncertainties around the, you know, the premiere and all of the uncertainties that the pandemic brought in general, you were still able to continue composing and focus on writing that work during that time. Oh, yes. Well, this is one thing about being a composer anyway. I mean, you are in lockdown a lot of the time, whether you like it or not, because you're, you're, you're sitting in your own working at this stuff. The one thing was that I was working on an orchestra piece for no particular reason. It was just something I wanted to work on. I was getting less and less enthusiastic about this because the likelihood of its ever being performed, or at least in the near future, had kind of evaporated into the air. 
And uh, a colleague suggested that composers should maybe concentrate on writing for small combinations of instruments for the time being. And I took this seriously and I started writing miniatures for small groups of instruments, for flute and piano, for piano solo, mm -hmm. uh, and also for singers. And I suddenly started writing these pieces that uh, they just came from nowhere. So I actually was very productive during the, the, the entire lockdown period. In that sense, it was almost a positive thing for me, you know. Mm. Going back to this piece, it's for piano quartet. And you said that it's a piece of, of extremes. Can you tell me about, you know, this structurally or how the piece was formed in that way? The beginning of the piece already introduces an ominous note. The piano plays these low clusters uh, uh, that, again, I don't often use in my music. And then... It does proceed very quietly because uh, I, I was using the harmonics on the stringed instruments in a sense to represent air in its more benign, more angelic aspect. That, in a way, generated a lot of the harmonic material of the piece because I wanted to use adjacent harmonics in the strings so that it would be as legato as possible, but at the same time combine them to make interesting harmonies. That took a lot of thought right at the beginning. Then the piano, which doesn't have those limitations, takes over those same harmonies. Uh, that became one of the, what I would like to call, I suppose, the dialectics of the piece. But then that idea of the angelic versus the demonic, uh, the, the demonic when it comes in the piece, uh, is very demonic indeed. And there is a, a, a climax uh, that I regard as quite apocalyptic. After which everything dies down. Uh, there is a quotation from Prayer for Peace from the, the Japanese science fiction film Gojira or Godzilla. The words of it go something like, may we live without destruction, may we look to tomorrow with hope. And then the piece becomes very calm towards the end and ends with the performers whispering one of the quotations on which the piece is based. Uh, a poem by Quasimodo, the Italian or Sicilian poet, called Ancient Winter. And the last words are, and ourselves made of air in the morning. So I think of the piece as kind of coming in rather ominously, uh, becoming quite ferocious, and then ending with the kind of tentative optimism. Mm. Mm. And the quotations themselves, you mentioned uh, one of the the quotations the prayer for peace you're no stranger to using quotation in, in your in your work you've used that in a number of pieces you know how do you decide and when do you decide to use quotations well it varies from piece to piece uh, it depends on on the requirements of the piece in this case uh, i certainly hadn't intended to use any quotations, but just by, by coincidence, um, I was watching that extraordinary classic uh, Japanese film from 1954, 
that was turned into Godzilla in, in English, where you have this very moving scene of, of uh, well, the, first of all, there is the, the cataclysm where the beast uh, destroys Tokyo. Um, and this is obviously a metaphor for Hiroshima. And then you see emerging from the ruins these schoolchildren and they sing this hymn. And I found that incredibly moving and uh, I, I couldn't resist the temptation to quote it at that particular moment because it seemed particularly appropriate at that particular point in the piece that I had reached. So, you know, these, these coincidences uh, can, can be just as important as your, your best laid plans. Uh, and my plans are never too rigidly structured anyway. And you mentioned other quotations. Are there, there, are there other quotations of pieces in there? No, no. Musical, there are no musical quotations. There are only these uh, literary quotations, if you want to call them that, only one of which actually materialises, and that's the one at the very end where they whisper a bit of the, the Quasimodo. There's one from the Apocalypse uh, about the, the fifth angel and a star falling from heaven to earth. And uh, the angel opens a bottomless pit and there arises this smoke out of the pit. It's, it's a very, uh, very strong quotation. Mm. Then there's one from one of the lesser known of the English uh, World War I poets, F.S. Flint, a poem called Lament, which is about uh, the genius of the air has contrived a new terror, uh, which is again appropriate. Then there's Pal Salan from The Fugue of Death, you rise as smoke into the air and you have a grave in the clouds. And then there is the, the, the quotation from Quasimodo, mm. from his poem Ancient Winter. A little sun, an angel's halo, and then the mist and the trees and ourselves made of air in the morning. So these quotations, I, I, I thought a lot about them before working on the piece. And I, like, I would like the, the performers to, to read them and think about them as well before playing. Raymond Dean in conversation with me, Jonathan Grimes. We'll return to this shortly, but next we'll hear from Rudersdal chamber player's violinist Christine Prune about the piece. It's rich in imagination. There's a lot of expression, and now this piece was about air, and this expresses this very well. It's not like it's just one idea and only focusing on this, but it's there's a lot of things happening, and you feel there's something going on in his mind, and he expresses this through the music. So there's a lot to do for the performer. The music fits extremely well because during the piece we are breathing, and he thought it might be inappropriate now because of this COVID situation would be inappropriate to make this sound, but I said, no, it's okay. Then he uses a lot of harmonics, which also sound airy, and also just when you hardly touch the string with the bow. I think he really 
managed to get this element of air into the music in many ways. And he he writes clearly if it's exhalation or inhalation. He uses the so-called seagull effect. When we make the artificial harmonics, we have the natural harmonics, which are just where they are on the string. But then we can make artificial harmonics like with fifth or with fourth. Like pressing down one finger and putting the other finger just laying it on the string. And when you do that, like fifth harmonic very high on one string. And then instead of spreading the fingers when you go down, just keep this. Then it makes it... Christine Prynne. Back now to my conversation with Raymond Dean. And not all commissions are that you would receive as a composer are that kind of specific, are they? In that you're asked in this case to write a piece which is to do with a particular theme. Does that make it more... um, not easier, that's the wrong word, but but it narrows the focus in terms of what you're concentrating on or what you're thinking about in terms of the pre-composition of the work. A commission like this that does specify a particular direction, uh, I, I find it quite welcome. And in this case, it was, it was quite a congenial theme because it's the kind of thing I, I, I'm quite preoccupied with as, uh, as uh, someone who has been an anti-war activist, and probably still is. It gives you a direction, it gives you something to think about, and also from the point of view of the public, it gives them something to hold onto when they're listening to the piece. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, if I'm commissioned, I obey orders. <laughs> uh, it's If you're a professional composer, you, you, you do what's expected of you, and you, uh, you work around it if necessary. Given that you mentioned your political activism and your anti-war stance, as you describe it, you know, one often doesn't get the opportunity to, I suppose, to say something direct within a piece of music. How important do you feel when it comes to your output? Is it to make those kind of stands or make those positions clear in terms of, you know, your views about war, injustice, all of those big humanitarian themes? Generally speaking, I don't see myself as a, quote, uh, political composer, except in the sense that everything one does can be interpreted politically in some way. So I've had a fairly large output over the last, my God, more than half a century that I've been active as a composer. And I would say only a handful of compositions have had an explicitly political dimension. And generally speaking, I don't feel under any pressure to express my political viewpoints in my work, but I have chosen to do so 
on a few occasions and uh, sometimes the political context may be one that uh, the composer, him or herself, is aware of and that the, the listener doesn't need to be aware of. Other times I like to make it explicit. In, in a piece like my oboe concerto, for example, you can take it either way. You can take it as a purely abstract piece, although you know that something pretty weird is happening in the last, <laughs> in the last movement. And there is actually a program behind it. It has to do with the soloist as exile being dominated by the orchestra as oppressor. So you can take that either politically or not. Mm. Uh, generally speaking, I'm not obsessed with the idea of embodying politics in my, my actual practice. I think it's probably in there whether I like it or not anyway. Context is everything and, you know, the context in which a piece is, is programmed, is performed, is, is, is almost, a, you know, as important in terms of the sentiments around, around the work or the, or the background to the composition of the work. And it almost feels like we have just emerged from a two year crisis with the pandemic and we're facing into another crisis in terms of the potential of Europe being drawn into an, a, another war. Does that strike you that, you know, those, those um, that, that kind of connection or is that something you prefer just to not think about or not engage with in, in relation to this work? Obviously, I do think about it in relation to this work because uh, there there is an explicit uh, uh, political context uh, for it. As, as I say, the initial premiere was on the 27th of January of uh, 2021, Holocaust Memorial Day. And apparently when the premiere did take place last month, there was a whole political context. There was a poet reading works that had a, poems that had a political context. And that will come up again in this uh, forthcoming performance. So all that is explicit. Also, of course, the fact that I didn't go to the, the premiere in the end, had something to do with the pandemic as well, because at that point, both Ireland and Denmark looked as though they were in severe trouble, and I just didn't uh, didn't want to take any risks at that point. As for uh, forthcoming war in Europe, I think there's absolutely no reason why it should happen. I think it's a lot of saber-rattling, but it just does show that the powers that be that run this world of ours uh, are very intent on rattling sabers. Uh, so as long as people are rattling sabers, we have to continue to embody a perspective that is opposed to any kind of warfare. So, yeah, I see what I do in that context as well. Mm. And your relationship with Christine Prun, you mentioned your violin concerto, which you wrote for her. When was that? I think that was probably composed around 2004. Uh, it's on my, my second orchestral yeah. CD with the National Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, we've worked subsequently. She commissioned a piece for me uh, for, um, was it for the bicentenary of Hans Christian Andersen? Um, I wrote a piece based on, on his story, The Snow Queen, uh, for her then ensemble, which was called North Luce, North Light. That has been performed quite a lot. It's called Ice Flowers. So it's great to be working with her again. She's a very um, 
dedicated uh, and extraordinary musician and she has a new ensemble now that uh, are really up to the job. They're great people. And in terms of your um, your working relationship with her and having written for her, did this factor in any way when you were writing the work that you knew you were writing for her She as a, as a violinist of the ensemble? Was there any connection in terms of her sound that made it into the work? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, the only connection was that I knew uh, she and her fellow musicians would be would be able to do just about anything I asked of them. I'm not an extended technique person. I don't play any stringed instrument myself. I'm a, a lazy pianist. And I wrote things in this piece that I was extremely unsure about. My God, is this possible at all? Uh, and there is one episode in particular that uh, that I thought... This is really, it's in the lap of the gods whether this is playable at all. And sure, they, they, uh, they pulled it off with, uh, with no problems whatsoever. There were one or two modifications that Christine and I were able to make uh, via Zoom. I wasn't able to turn up to, to rehearsals in Denmark originally. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was just knowing that these were incredible musicians and that uh, I could take risks and that they would probably, uh, as they did, be able to deal with those risks professionally you know the piano quartet itself it's it's a very established um, medium did any of that figure in your composition of the work like were you thinking of the great works of Brahms and the, and the like no certainly not um, I wasn't thinking of the tradition at all and in fact my original idea was that the piano and the, the three stringed instruments would be practically antagonists that they would have nothing to do with one another but that changed and it's nice I, I love the way these these things actually change in the process of working uh, as, as I think I explained the whole, the whole idea of, of, of writing these quiet passages based on the string harmonics that ties you down in some ways uh, because I wanted to use natural harmonics as far as possible. It ties you down to the notes you can use. The piano doesn't have those restrictions, but then it was nice to hand that material over to the piano and see what the piano would do with it uh, and kind of move away from the restrictions and then the stringed instruments maybe to try and emulate what the piano was doing. So it became a much more integrated piece in the end uh, and I certainly wasn't thinking in terms of the tradition although if I was I might have thought about that piano trio by Shostakovich the one with the extraordinarily bleak scherzo that did enter into my head a few times but otherwise no In terms of, you know, work for 2022 and beyond now that we're hopefully, hopefully emerging into something that is a little bit more uh, predictable in terms of concert life and, and performances and, and programming and planning. Uh, what do you have coming up or what, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on uh, a string quartet for no particular reasons. Just again, I felt that I wanted to write a string quartet. I am involved now in a collaborative relationship via the CMC with the Cassiopeia Winds. In the, my half-century career, I've never written anything for Wind Quintet, which is uh, interesting. So I'm looking forward to working with them and writing a Wind Quintet for them, I hope. Mm -hmm. 
And apart from that, I am hoping to uh, set up the premieres maybe of some of the stuff that I've been working on during the pandemic, some of these these sets of miniatures. So I'm going to be concentrating a bit on that as well. W- one thing uh, that I, I, I did in the context of this particular piece was uh, um, activate my YouTube channel. I had the YouTube channel for 11 years and never actually did anything with it. So uh, 11 years later, I, I activated my YouTube channel. So this piece is already, the, the first performance of this piece is, is already on that channel, and there are lots of other goodies on it as well. As all good podcasters say, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yes, good, good, good. Link, links are always good. Raymond, thanks very much. Thank you. The ending of Raymond Dean's Vayu Vata, performed by the Rudersdal Chamber Players. My thanks to Raymond Dean and Christine Prun. That's all for this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, thanks for listening.